This podcast is about anything and everything that gets us better at making things good and good at making things better. It's called extreme stewardship because the first thing to say about getting better at making things good and good at making things better is that both we ourselves and whatever we're working on don't belong to us. We are stewards of what is God's, not owners of what is ours. And in a world that prioritizes getting as the ultimate good and self as the ultimate end, that's pretty extreme. This is episode 11, where I do my best to sound like I know something about leadership. Leadership. Gotta start with a definition, right? And not just any definition, a theological definition. First observation. Leadership is a subcategory of work. It is a creaturely activity whereby other creatures are improved. Second, leadership is a specifically human-to-human activity. You can lead a horse to water, I suppose, but I don't think we're using the word lead there in quite the same way as when we talk about leadership. So leadership is an activity that entails one image-bearer improving another. Third observation. It doesn't quite work to put that creaturely improvement into the same five categories that I discussed in episode four, productivity, order, beauty, virtue, and fun. You certainly could lead someone into being more of any one of those things, but I doubt we would call every instance of helping another person become more of those things leadership. Fourth observation. I think it works better to think of leadership as influencing them toward becoming better workers. Not merely that I make you more productive, but that I make you better at making creation more productive. And that making or influencing is also key. The person at the checkout counter at Home Depot is helping me do the work of improving creation, but I doubt we would call that a leadership function. On the other hand, if a Home Depot employee takes me around the store and teaches me, advises me, mentors me in the process of making my home more orderly or beautiful, Now we're getting closer to leadership, theologically defined, because that person is taking an active role in making me a better worker. Let's see how this works in relation to Genesis 1 and 2. The original instruction to humanity is twofold. Be fruitful and multiply. Rule the earth. Improve creation and have kids who are going to improve creation. I think it's reasonable to suppose that the relationship between these two commands is mostly practical. It's a big world out there, and it's going to take a lot more than two people to manage it. Adam and Eve can handle the garden, perhaps, but they're going to need some help covering the rest of the planet. So the job is to improve creation and to have kids so they can improve creation. Now, what would happen if we took that point about having kids so they can improve creation as metaphorical as well as literal or biological? There's actually a precedent for this in the Bible, where the process of discipleship is frequently described in terms of a parent-child relationship. And it's worth noticing that in those instances, the goal of the process is precisely for the child to become a parent. You see this in church mission statements sometimes, helping disciples make disciples, raising up those who will teach others also, that sort of thing. Because the point of being a disciple is to make disciples. It's a multi-generational undertaking. If we were to map this onto leadership, we would say that the role of a leader is to raise up leaders. A true leader in this sense isn't the one with lots of followers. It's the one whose followers have become leaders themselves. 
going back to the parental origins of this point, it isn't enough that my kids become more productive, orderly, beautiful, virtuous, and fun. They have to have that effect on the creation around them. My work, in relation to my children, whether biological or otherwise, is to influence them to do their work. There's one more component to this, and here we have to look ahead a bit into how work works given the reality of sin. I'll tackle that in more detail in the next episode, but there's a basic point in relation to leadership that's worth mentioning now, and that is, your work is going to outlast you. I don't mean that you or I will necessarily build something that lasts for generations. Some of us will do that, some of us won't, but that's not the point. The point is that someday I am going to die. And when I do, the work of improving creation will go on without me. Creation will not reach its apex at my hands. There will be more to do when I am gone. Simon Sinek's concept of an infinite game is really helpful here. A finite game, according to Sinek, has a beginning and an end, a winner and a loser. And the goal of playing the game is to win the game. When the clock runs out and the buzzer sounds, I walk off the court victorious. The game has ended and I keep going. An infinite game has no end, no winner, no loser, and the goal of playing the game is to stay in the game. A cynic's main point is that business works like this far more often than we realize. No business has as its goal the complete elimination of the competition and the complete saturation of the market such that there is no more demand for the product because every single person alive already has the fullest possession possible of that product. That's what winning looks like if business is a finite game. But it's not a finite game, because the goal of being in business is to stay in business. To grow, to expand, to improve, sure. But most importantly, to remain in the game. Our work as creation-improving image bearers is an infinite game. Remember the distinction between good and perfect from episode 3. If improving creation were a finite game, the goal would be to perfect creation and then to move on to something else. That's not going to happen. That's not supposed to happen. That's not the goal. The goal of improving creation is to stay in the game, to keep the process going. But of course, in business as well as in image bearing, there's one big problem. And the problem is that we die. The game might be infinite, but we aren't. How does the owner of a business deal with this problem? They set things on a trajectory such that the business outlives them. How does a parent deal with this problem? They set their kids on a trajectory to live life well after they are gone. They get the next generation ready to keep playing the infinite game. And this, I think, is our theological definition of leadership. Doing the work of getting the next generation ready to do the work. To go back to something I said a couple of minutes ago, the goal of every leader should be to raise up leaders, not merely followers. And I don't mean type A go-getters who love to run the show. The stereotype of the egomaniacal big man on campus who attracts other egomaniacal big men on campus is not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about leaders theologically defined. People who see it as their work to get the next generation ready to do the work. Produce more of those kinds of people, whatever their gender or personality or specific field of operation, and you will have shown yourself to be a leader. 
It doesn't take much imagination to envision the various ways this can go wrong. How many business success stories are exactly one generation long? One person with a big vision and a big work ethic drives the ship as long as they can, and the moment they step away from the helm, shipwreck, because they never let anyone else take the wheel while they were around to teach them how. Now, sometimes that's pure ego. There are some control freaks out there who can't stomach anyone else leading. They can't handle anyone else succeeding, anyone else getting the credit. Sometimes it's just personal fear. If someone else can do the job as well as I can or better, what good am I? Sometimes, and I think this is probably the most common situation, it's the parent and the four-year-old that I mentioned in episode 10. The parent is in a hurry. The parent is thinking tactically, not strategically. The parent does the work themselves instead of inviting the four-year-old into the work because it's simpler and more efficient in the moment. And by the way, the parent-to-four-year-old image isn't just an image. Everything I'm saying here applies to parenting as much as or maybe more than to a professional environment. We are continually tempted to do the job ourselves instead of training our kids or our coworkers or our subordinates to do it because that's faster and better in the short term. But the long-term implications of this are extremely problematic. First, you run the risk of never getting your job done because you're always micromanaging everyone else's job. Second, the next generation never actually gets to do the job. Third, you run the risk of a catastrophe if you get sick or go on vacation or are absent from the job for any reason. And fourth, someday you are going to leave that job permanently, and then what? I know a man who pastored a church for four decades. Look, 40 years in one church is extraordinary. We should all be so faithful. But the day he retired, the church nearly folded because in all those years, he had not trained a single person to take his place. He simply did all the work himself, never trusting nor training anyone else to partner with him in that work. Biblically speaking, he wasn't a leader. He didn't do the job, because a significant part of the job is getting the next generation ready to do the job. Leadership, defined as getting the next generation ready to continue the work of improving creation, is everyone's problem. Everyone is a leader because everyone is doing work that will continue after they are gone, and therefore everyone shares in the responsibility to get the next generation of workers ready to pick up the mantle. So why don't we do this? There are probably a few options, but I'm willing to bet that the most common wrong way of thinking about this is that we think it's not our problem what happens when we leave or die. There's a great biblical example of this in an Israelite king named Hezekiah. And when I say great biblical example, I mean terrible example in the Bible because the vast majority of exemplars in the Bible are the negative kind. Don't be like this person. Don't treat women like David did. Don't be a parent like Eli or Samuel or Jacob. Don't take matters into your own hands like Saul or Aaron did. And don't think about what happens after you're gone like Hezekiah did. Hezekiah was a pretty solid guy for the most part. Here's the overarching verdict on him from 2 Kings 18 verses 5 and 6. Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. There was no one like him among all the kings of Judah, either before him or after him. He held fast to the Lord and did not stop following him. He kept the commands the Lord had given Moses. Not bad, eh? There's really only one black mark on Hezekiah's record, but it's a big one. 
having been rescued by God from being overrun by the Assyrian Empire, Hezekiah foolishly invited the Babylonians to waltz into Jerusalem, his capital city, and scope it out in preparation for a conquest. The prophet Isaiah called him out on this and told him that after he died, Babylon would come and destroy the city. Hezekiah's response is unbelievable. The word of the Lord you've spoken is good, Hezekiah replied, for he thought, will there not be peace and security in my lifetime? Yeah, you heard that right. Isaiah says the Babylonians are going to come back for another visit, and that time they're going to completely demolish this place. And Hezekiah's response is, who cares, as long as it's after I'm dead, it's not my problem. How often do we think in these terms? We leave a company, and the company tanks, and our first thought is, not my problem. No question about what responsibility we might bear for leaving the company worse off than we found it. No consideration for what role we might have played in avoiding the disaster. Don't get me started on coaches who cheat for years and then leave and take another position just before the scandal breaks and everyone else is left under the rubble. If you think I'm crazy right now, just remember this podcast is called Extreme Stewardship. Extreme Stewardship means leaving the place better than you found it, and that includes getting the next generation ready to pick up where you left off, and that means it is always our responsibility to consider who is going to play our position when we walk off the court while the game is still going. And that means we are looking for, prepping for, setting our house in order for our replacement. And we are doing that right now. Not after we put in our notice, or when we start leaning into retirement, or when we find out that we're getting promoted or fired or reassigned. Now. Do we start parenting our children when it's almost time to get them ready to go out on their own? My father likes to say that the whole point of having kids is to get them ready to leave. And that process starts at birth. The minute I become a parent, it is my job to get them ready to do the job. The minute I get hired, it is my job to begin getting ready to hand that job off to someone else. Let's get more specific. Presumably, my work involves several things. Quite possibly, it involves a specific space, a shop, an office, a vehicle, a job site, a a hundred-acre field, a quarter-acre backyard. How am I getting that space ready to move on without me? This can be as simple as a parent teaching their kids to make their beds, or as complex as the captain of an aircraft carrier getting ready to turn that ship over to a new commanding officer. Your work might also involve logistics or procedures. If you've ever taken a position where the previous person had made a hash out of these things, you know the pain. A friend of mine once spent several years writing her own job description. The reason it took several years is that her job description existed in relation to everyone else's job description, and those didn't exist either. Since she's good at these sorts of things, she eventually became the COO for the company, which is a great gig, except that there's a very predictable reason why no one knew what their job was or how to do it. The CEO was a control freak. So basically, everyone's job was to ask his opinion about stuff and then do what he said. Dysfunctional is a nice word for what was happening at this organization. So my friend's goal was to make the job of the next COO a whole lot easier than hers was. Here's another one. Your work almost certainly involves relationships. Getting the next generation ready to do the job means improving those relationships so that the next person doesn't have to overcome the bad blood between you and everyone else. Todd, our mailman, is a great example of this. My kids love him, 
My wife and I enjoy talking with him, and we've never had any kind of issue in all the years he's worked our neighborhood. When he retires or moves on or relocates or whatever, someone else is going to step into those shoes. And let's suppose that Todd comes by one day and says, hey, this is Bill, he's the new mailman, he's great. When that happens, I'm already on Bill's team because of the work that Todd did to build relationships between that job and our family. The last part of this conversation is one that's frequently talked about with some kinds of work and almost never talked about with other kinds of work. I'm talking about actually replacing myself. I'm talking about leading the person who is going to take my job someday. The military does this all the time because when you get promoted or relocated, the person who takes your spot is often someone who's been your subordinate up to that point. Not always, but often. In most fields, though, we ignore this entirely. I'm leaving, so it's the companies or the churches or the school's job to replace me. Nope. It's my job. My problem. My responsibility. Am I being a little extreme? Yep. Now, I don't mean unilaterally making the decision as to who will replace me. It doesn't usually work that way. I do mean finding that person, training that person, leading that person, encouraging that person, and then playing whatever role you can in actually bringing that person into the space that you are about to vacate. Doing this is going to require at least three things, and none of them are easy. First, it requires my organization to trust me. If I go to the boss and say, hey, I think Joe should be the next whatever I am, and my boss doesn't trust me, the result of that conversation is that Joe is never getting that job. So part of what I do to get things ready for that next person is build trust with my employer so I can be in a position to influence that handoff when the time comes. Second, it requires humility. It requires me to say to myself, to my boss, to my coworkers, whoever's involved, at some point, Joe is going to be able to do this job better than I can. And when that happens, move me out and move him in. It also requires humility because replacement is gradual. Ideally, I'm going to give my job to Joe incrementally so that he gets some reps in, so that he can build trust in the organization, so that he is in fact ready to occupy my seat when it's time for me to leave it. In the long run, that's going to be better for the organization, the school, the family. Don't forget, we are stewards, not owners. And because I am a steward, the doing of the job is more important than my doing of the job. When I talk to my provost, the chief academic officer of my university, when I talk to her about teaching loads, I sometimes tell her that she can give my hermeneutics class to someone else when she pries it from my cold, dead fingers. And it's a joke that's meant to communicate, I love that class, it's my favorite thing to teach, and I want to keep teaching it forever. But when I reflect back on those conversations, I realize I kind of mean it. And that's not good. Because that means I'm transitioning from being a steward to being an owner. That class is mine. I own it. And I don't trust anyone else to teach it. Not cool. What I ought to be doing is constantly asking myself, how am I preparing that class to be taught by someone else? That involves preparing spaces, like which classroom is best for that course and what is the vibe of the room that fits a freshman general education course on how to study the Bible. It involves logistics and procedures like syllabi and lesson plans and course management software. It involves relationships. If the word on campus is that hermeneutics is something to look forward to, students are going to come into it thinking 
hermeneutics is a course worth taking, not just Kibbe is a professor worth taking. And finally, it involves personnel. Who do I have in mind to teach that class someday? And if the answer is nobody, well, it's time to get moving. And that's the third thing we need. First, trust. Second, humility. And third, strategic thinking. Long-term thinking. Working ourselves out of a job by training our replacement isn't typically something that can be done at a moment's notice. Don't wait until your legacy years to start this process. Don't wait until you get the call for promotion or relocation before you first ponder who might take your place when you leave. Leadership includes, from the moment we begin a job, working ourselves out of that job by preparing someone else to replace us someday. Getting the next generation ready to do the job is part of the job. Thanks for listening to the Extreme Stewardship Podcast. My name is Michael Kibbe, and I teach Bible and theology at Great Northern University in Spokane, Washington. My behind-the-scenes partner in this project is my brother, Ben Kibbe. Our editor-in-chief is Annalee Stockton. Art comes from Leah Leenhouts, and of course, music is provided by Dave Murray of Derridoon Guitars. If this series has been helpful or challenging to you, or if you've got a story about extreme stewardship that you'd be willing to share, shoot us an email, extremestewards at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. You are, of course, welcome to like and subscribe and tell your friends and all that. What we really care about is that you have gotten better at making things good and good at making things better. 